As we open our God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear and read and learn and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. That's on page 290 of many of our pew Bibles. And 1 Samuel is between Judges and the book of 2 Samuel. Um, And so we want to think together about chapter 3 in connection with the third commandment. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll consider how this teaches us about the third commandment. So 1 Samuel, beginning our reading at chapter 3, verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. One of the blessings of going through the Heidelberg Catechism and being able to think about what it teaches us about various portions of Scripture is that as it brings to us the fundamentals of the faith, sometimes it points out things that we may not have come up with ourselves. Uh, one, One such statement is here in the third commandment, thinking about the great sin of blasphemy, and it says that no sin is greater. You know, I don't know that if we were just thinking and meditating on the word ourselves that we would have concluded that, um, that we would have come up with the fact that this is the most grievous of sins, uh, that there is no sin greater, that there's no sin that provokes God's wrath more than those who take his name in vain. But isn't that what the third commandment teaches us from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, that this is a very serious sin uh, that carries with it a serious sentence. Um, That's why the Lord commanded it to be punished with death in Scripture. Um, And certainly that is the sentence that's passed on Eli's sons for blaspheming God. Um, That is the sentence of death that comes to them. Uh, It's a terrible sentence that comes uh, for this terrible sin against the house of Eli, and we want to think about this passage in that light, uh, how we are, are helped to understand the monstrous nature of this sin um, and how we can think about it. And this passage is good because it reminds us that the sins that are commanded against in the, old, in the Ten Commandments always constitute the things that we are not to do, and what's always implied is the other side of that is the things we are to do. Uh, That as we go through the law, again, one of the ways the catechism helps us is to remind us that wherever God's word says, don't do this, God is also saying, do something else instead. Uh, You might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the things we need to put off and the things that we need to put on. Um, And that's what the law is always doing for us. It's saying the things that we need to turn away from and the things that we need to do. It's the, the vices to be avoided and the virtues to be put on. And not only do we see the great sin of blasphemy playing out in this text, we see the, we see the great blessing of when the, your, when the Lord's name is used properly. The great blessing of the Lord's name when it's properly used. And that's why this passage is helpful for us as well. God does not want his name to be used in vain, but he does want his name to be used properly, to be used in love, to be used to call on him. Uh, to praise his name, to confess him. And we see both in this passage, both the sins to be avoided and the virtues to be put on. And so this passage helps us. It helps us first think about the glorious name of God. And that's where we want to begin our, our, our look at this passage, the glorious name of God. And then we see the grievous sin of blaspheming God. And we want to consider that together. But finally, we want to think about the great blessing that the name of God brings when God is called upon properly. So that's how I want to think about this passage together. The glorious name, the grievous sin, and the great blessing. 
Um, First, we see the glorious name throughout this passage. One of the reasons this stuck out to me was because of this direct connection to blasphemy that comes against Eli's sons. But it's also a good passage for thinking about the glories of the name of God because the name of the Lord appears over and over again in this passage. Um, If you were to go through and count the number of times you see Lord in capital letters... You don't need to do that. I've done it for you. I'm going to tell you. It's 19 times in 21 verses. 19 times in 21 verses we're told Yahweh said this. Yahweh did that. Yahweh was doing this. The covenant name of God. It appears again and again and again in this passage. This passage is filled with the name of the Lord. Um, you, You can't really get away from it. You can't get away from it because the number one actor in this passage is the Lord. And number two is Samuel. Uh, Look back with me at chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, verse 20, when Hannah is praising the Lord and naming her son that the Lord has given her. um, And Eli says that they will be blessed. And in the second part, um, she names the son that's born Samuel. Um, And why does she name the son that's born Samuel? In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I asked Yahweh for him. Right, And there's a footnote in our ESVs, and at the bottom it says, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard of the Lord, or heard of God. So even the name of Samuel reminds us that why is he named Samuel? Because the Lord heard his mother when she called and provided him to her. There too is a reminder of the name of the Lord that worked to bring Samuel into the world. And that the repetition of the Lord's name and the the number of times the Lord is brought up in this passage shows us many aspects of who our God is. The Lord reveals himself to us. In this passage, he reveals something of the glory of his name, right? Even in Samuel's name, we're we're reminded that Yahweh is a God who hears, who hears his people when they call. It's wonderful to have a covenant God who's listening to his people, especially when they pour out their hearts the way Hannah poured out her heart for a child that she so desired. And the Lord heard, the Lord gave. We have a God who hears. And we're reminded at the beginning of this passage that we have a God who is present with his people. The Lord who hears is present with them. Right? The setting for this story is the temple at Shiloh. Now we know that the temple was not built until Solomon's time, but there was a structure set up around the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is where Joshua brought the tent of meeting and had it set up when the people of God first came into the promised land. This is the tabernacle that is set up at Shiloh. And what did the tabernacle always testify to God's people? That God is present in our midst. That God is tabernacling with us. There's a reason that when the Apostle John begins his gospel, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. He he was with us. We have a God who's present with his people. Um, And that's what we are being reminded of here. That this God who hears is with us. He's among us. He's near. Right? And, And there are people that are serving in this temple. And the particular service that we're reminded of here 
is the tending of the lampstand. Um, one of the things that, you know, the temple, the tabernacle is always an interesting study because there's so much symbolism built into it to teach God's people about who God is. And you might remember that there was a lampstand that was always to be kept lit from evening to morning in the outer holy place in the temple. And what was that light meant to always tell Israel? That we have a God who is our light in the darkness. Right? There's a light that's always burning for God's people. Um, when the sun goes down, the light is lit in the, in, the, in the tabernacle, and it's kept lit there from evening till morning. That's why when this passage says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Um, that's just giving us a time stamp on this story. And saying this was a time when the oil in those lamps had not yet run out. It wasn't yet morning. The night was far gone and the day was at hand, but it wasn't yet morning. It was still the evening before the sunrise. That God is a God who lightens the darkness for his people. And that's something that is so important in this passage because it's a passage where there's reminders of light, but there's also reminders of the darkness. Right, that this was a dark time for the people of God. And that's, that's pointed out in this story, um, both, both physically and spiritually. The fact that it's nighttime, it's dark out. The fact that the high priest can't see very well. His eyes are dim. He dwells in darkness. And what was the kind of time where God's people were living? It was a time when the word of the Lord was rare. It was a dark time physically, but it was a dark time spiritually. There's a reason that 1 Samuel comes after Judges. That's the time in which the story takes place. That's the, the sad time of God's people after the great Glorious days of Joshua and the first elders of his people. Then come the time of the judges. And what is the repeated refrain in that book? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel. And so even though we have a God whose light shines in the dark, this was a relatively dark time for the people of God. The word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision. That meant that it occasionally came through a prophetic voice here or there. But there was no one you could depend on or go to and say and inquire of the Lord and ask, what is the word of the Lord? There's no, there's no prophet to talk to. And it's a dark setting for the story, but it's a glorious light that has come to shine through Samuel. The word of the Lord was rare in that day, but the Lord is going to work to bring a light to his people. He's going to raise up this child, Samuel, to be someone who speaks the word of the Lord. So that when he comes with the commission of the Lord, it's not a time of darkness anymore. No one will be able to say, the, the word of the Lord is rare, or we don't know where to find it. Because Samuel is given to them by God. He's the one who speaks for the Lord. He's the one through whom the Lord speaks. He's the one through whom the Lord will appear to his people. There's a glory coming. It's a reminder to us that the Lord is a God who shines his light into our darkness. You thought I'd lost my track, but I came back to it. Um, 
That's, that's one of the glorious things we learn about our God. He hears, he's present, and he's present to bring his light into our darkness. That's who our God is. That's what this call is doing for, for Samuel. This is actually a great moment in the history of God's people. It's the, really the inauguration of that prophetic office. One commentator said, Samuel's work is the establishment of a new age. As Abraham is the father of believers and Moses is the mediator of the law, so Samuel is the father of the kingdom and of the prophetic office. It's through Samuel that the Lord is going to put an end to the famine of his word that's been there and to, through that word, reveal himself and appear again from one end of Israel to the other. From Dan to Beersheba, that's their way of talking, from one end to the other. Uh, God will once again lighten their darkness. That's who the Lord is. The Lord is a God who enlightens darkness. The Lord is a God who enforces justice. That's the first word that Samuel is given. It's a hard word. It's a hard word for a little boy to be given. Um, we don't know how, how old Samuel was, but he was still probably a little boy when the Lord spoke to him. Um, and to be given this message is a serious message, but what does the message remind us? The Lord is a God who enforces justice. Eli had had sons that were ministering in the temple, and his sons were, the technical theological term is, rats. They were wicked, evil people. They did all kinds of evil. They would steal from the Lord's offerings, portions that were not supposed to be theirs. They were sleeping with the women who ministered in the, te- in the temple. They were all kinds of abusive in their office. And one of the things that God comes to do is to say, I am not unaware of the injustice that's been perpetrated against my people. And sometimes when injustice is being perpetrated by people in high places, the people that aren't in high places can say, what what can we do about this? Who can do something about this? And the Lord comes and says, I can do something about this. I'm not a God who has not been seeing this. I'm a God who said I was going to do something about it, and now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to put them away from before my people, what the, what the people were powerless to do, what Eli, in a sense, was powerless to do. God says, I will do. The Lord is a God who enforces justice. We see that clearly in this passage. But the last thing we see about the Lord's, the Lord's glorious name in this passage is that he shows amazing kindness and tenderness in his dealings with his people. I'm really indebted to Dale Ralph Davis, who in his really fine commentary on 1 Samuel, it's very readable, it's a, it's a wonderful commentary, but he really drew my attention to the kindness of God, the, the tenderness of God that he shows to this little boy that he's calling. Um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very human, tender scene in this, isn't it? That this boy hears a voice calling and it says, he says, well, it must be Eli, he must need something, he doesn't see so well, it's nighttime, I better go help him. But every time he goes, he said, well, I'm not calling you. I don't know who's, who's calling you. Um, and the Lord keeps calling. 
And it's in the way he continues to relate to this boy he's going to raise up to do so much for the people that we do see the kindness of the Lord. And I'll let Davis explain it. He said, we see the kindness and gentleness of Yahweh. Here is a new step for Samuel and a new point of departure in Yahweh's dealings with Israel. And Yahweh is in no apparent hurry. There is time for Samuel to catch on. God is not heaving an exasperated sigh. He is not ready to berate Samuel for being so dense. He does not launch into a tirade about how Samuel never gets anything right. Here with Samuel, we have a true glimpse of Yahweh. He is willing to give us time to understand him. He is not holding a stopwatch over Samuel, threatening to have done with him if he does not wise up. No, Yahweh moderates his instruction to our condition. And so does Yahweh incarnate. What do we learn about our God in this passage? We learn a lot of wonderful things, but all of them are seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh, the Lord incarnate. And this is the kind of God he is. That he's a God who hears his people when they call. He is a God who is present with us, who came to be the light to enlighten our darkness. He's a lamp that doesn't go out, right? The light has shined in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has not overcome him. It's a light that does not go out. It enlightens his people. He brings the word of the Lord. It's a wonderful description of the ministry of Samuel at the end of chapter 3 when we read, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. It's in the word of the Lord coming that the Lord appears. It's in the word of the Lord coming that God is revealed to his people. And where does that come more fully? more wonderfully than in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Word incarnate appears and we see Him who is God, who is the hope of His people as the enforcer of justice against all who oppress Him, and who is amazing in His tenderness and kindness, showing patience to us as we take time to hear His call. There was a time when all of us, like Samuel, had not heard the word of the Lord. Maybe it was when we were really little. We grew up in the church, and when we were really young, it was hard to hear the word of the Lord. I know, boys and girls, it can be hard to hear the word of the Lord when the sermon goes on and on. But it's a wonderful privilege to grow up in the church and to always hear the word of the Lord. For some of us, it took longer to hear the word of the Lord, didn't it? There are times we say, I, I, didn't, I didn't know him. I hadn't heard it yet. And how patient he was to continue to call, to continue to speak. Even when there was a time we didn't know who was speaking or who was calling, we only had a vague sense of what that was. And suddenly he kept calling until we understood it's the Lord. Until he worked in our hearts by his spirit to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's the wonderful patience and kindness of our God. How wonderful it is to have a God who is ready to be found by those who seek him. It's one of the reasons that I chose that hymn 
Because of that wonderful line that we sung as our hymn for preparation, Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness, no harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. That's the God we serve. That's the God who came in the flesh. Those words, I'm sure, are based on Matthew 11, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a wonderful thing it is to have a God who is tender with us, who is kind. That's who Yahweh shows himself to be in this passage. That's who Yahweh has shown himself to be in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we understand the glory of his name, then we understand what a grievous sin it is to use that name as a common thing. Or to misuse that name in terrible ways. To use it as a curse or as a byword. And that's what this passage helps us to understand too. That's why it is such a serious thing to take the good and glorious name of the God we know and then to misuse that name. To use that name as if it's nothing. God's name really stands in for everything that God is. And that's why it's such a serious sin to misuse that name. To use that name in vain. That's why question 99 says, What is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Notice that that refers not only to misusing God's name when we speak it, taking it up on our lips, using it as a curse the way a lot of people do. We're filled with people all around us who use Jesus Christ as if it's an oath, as if it's a curse word to be uttered uh, when something doesn't go right in their lives. Or the flippant way so many people say, oh my God, about stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a misuse when we speak of God's word that way. But what the catechism reminds us too, it's also you blaspheme God's name when you work evil under the cover of his name. Right? When you take up his name and then you perjure yourself. Or you take up his name unnecessarily to make an oath. Sometimes God's name is not spoken as a curse. That's not how his name is abused. But we lift up his name and then we use his name as a cover for our evil. I'm sure that's what was happening with Eli's sons, the priests. I'm sure they were going around representing that they were very holy men while they were stealing the sacrifices of the Lord while they were sleeping with the servants of the Lord, while they were committing every kind of manner of evil, it was always under the banner of their service to the Lord. And I think that's what God means. There's no evidence in, this, in, the, in 1 Samuel that they ever misused the name of the Lord as they spoke it. But the Lord's point is, everything you did blasphemed my name. You used my name as a cover for your evil. That's what they're condemned for. They worked all this evil under the cover of the Lord's name. And that's how they blasphemed the name of the Lord. It's for that sin of blasphemy that they're destroyed. The way they acted dragged the name of God through the mud. 
and God will not have that. And we have to be careful about that too, that we don't use the name of the Lord as a cover for our evil or drag his name through the mud by the way we misbehave. That's a form of blasphemy. Even when we're sinning in other ways that don't seem to be taking the name of the Lord in vain while we speak it, we can be misusing his name how we act. It can be a cover for our evil. And not only are the sons condemned for blaspheming the name, but notice that Eli is condemned for sharing in their horrible sins by being a silent bystander. Right? Eli is, not, is clearly something of a devout man. He gives good instruction to Samuel when he gets this terrible announcement of judgment from Samuel, the little prophet. I can't imagine how hard that would be to take from a little boy. What did God say to you? Tell me all of it. Don't hold any of it back. All right, well, then I'll tell you. And he just lets him have it. Right? God had said, this is a judgment that's going to make all the ears of the people who hear it tingle. I mean, everyone's ears are going to burn when they hear this kind of thing. And it's a message not just against Eli's sons, but against Eli. And why? Because he was a silent bystander in their sins. He saw it and didn't do anything about it. Um, look what God says in verse 13. I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. He knew what they were doing, and he didn't stop them. He had a responsibility to stop them as the high priest. He did come to them as, as their father and rebuke them for their evil. But I think what God is saying here is, you had a responsibility to my people as the high priest to protect them from this kind of thing. They were blaspheming God and you didn't restrain them. And by doing that, you became a bystander. You became an accomplice in what they were doing because you didn't say anything and didn't stop them. It was your office to stop them. I think that's what the catechism has in mind when it says that we not be not participate in the sins of people by our silence. Um, Because I've had people who've looked at this catechism question, they say, I hear people blaspheming all day long. I I can't walk past someone who doesn't say, oh my God, or doesn't say something else like that. Does it mean that if I don't say anything to every single person I hear that from, that I'm somehow being a participant in their sin? I don't think that's what the catechism has in mind. But it does say there are times when to stay silent means that you seem to be going along with it. Um, That you seem to be participating by your silence. Um, And certainly when we have an opportunity to speak, we should try to take that opportunity. As a pastor, what I have happen a lot is people will swear around me and then they'll find out I'm a pastor. And then they'll say, oh, sorry, pastor. Um, They usually keep swearing. It's kind of a strange They kind of recognize it for a minute, but they don't entirely stop. Um, But what I've taken to do is say, you know, that other language bothers me, but it bothers me the most when you say God or Jesus Christ. If you could just not say that, I'm a big boy, the other stuff I can handle. Um, So I think we should try to take use of opportunities that we do have. But I think when the catechism condemns silent bystanders, it's condemning people like Eli. 
He had a responsibility to do something. And he chose not to do anything. And by doing that, by his silence, he said, I'm, I'm with this. He became complicit in those sins. He had a responsibility, and he didn't restrain them. So there are times for us when being silent bystanders will be seen as a participation in the sin, suggesting that we approve of it by our silence. And we certainly never should do that. Um, But this is, I think, the sense in which this passage comes and helps us to understand what what that part of the catechism is really getting at. If we understand and hold up the glorious name of God, it should bother us when that name is misused. It should not be something that we engage in. And where we have the ability, and certainly where we have the responsibility, we ought to speak in defense of that great name. Because it is a great name. And just as it is a great sin to misuse that name, there's a great blessing that comes from the proper use of the name. If we were to focus on the third commandment to the exclusion of the blessing of God's name, we would miss something important about what the commandment teaches us. It is a terrible sin to misuse God's name, but it is a great blessing to use the name of God. Some devout Jewish, uh, you know, in Judaism, devout people don't use the name of God at all. Um, everywhere they read the name Lord here, they would never say Yahweh. They would never try to pronounce it. They, they would substitute Adonai, which means Lord, a different thing to say. Or they would just say Hashem, the name. Um, but they lived in such fear sort of of misusing the name of God that they went to the opposite extreme and just never used it. And why does God reveal his name? He says clearly, don't misuse it, but I give you my name so that you may use it properly. Don't misuse it, don't use it in vain, but certainly use it in love. Certainly use it the way I want you to use it. And how does God want us to use his name? Well, here the catechism helps us too. We must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. And it's in Samuel that we see the right and proper use of the name of the Lord. Right? He calls upon the name of the Lord. Eli tells him, when God calls again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens, for your servant is listening. Um, Now, when Samuel responds, he says, speak, for your servant is listening. Um, but I think he's shown that he's going to do what Eli told him to do. Because, so I don't think that just because it's put that way means that he sort of chose not to use the Lord's name. But certainly he was calling on the name of the Lord. And it was the beginning of an intimate relationship between Samuel and God where the Lord would speak to him and he would speak for the Lord to God's people. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And it begins a wonderful service in the Lord's name that will be a blessing to Samuel and that will be a blessing to the people that Samuel speaks to. Right? The Lord is calling him and he responds by calling upon the Lord's name. Here I am. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And it leads to the Lord using him mightily in the service of his people. Um, so much so that he's the one who goes and finds the shepherd boy, 
that's anointed king over Israel, great King David, the man after God's own heart. Samuel calls upon the name of the Lord, and he confesses the Lord. The Catechism says we should use the name to confess the name of the Lord. It's sort of the way we talk about our confession of faith. We're proclaiming who the Lord is. And that's what Samuel will spend the rest of his life doing. Confessing the Lord. Proclaiming who the Lord is for all of Israel. Making it so that Israel sees the Lord and the Lord appears to them at Shiloh. He works confessing the name of the Lord. That too is just the glorious thrust of verse 21. It's through him that the Lord will be made known. And here on out through the ministry and life of Samuel, it will all be testimony to the fact that Samuel praised the Lord in everything he did and everything he said. Verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. What does it mean to let none of his words fall to the ground? It's that everything the Lord spoke through Samuel he left no word of it unfulfilled. There was never any time where Samuel confessed who God was, where Samuel proclaimed who God was or what God promised, that he ever found that that proclamation came back to him void. The, word, the Lord let none of those words fall to the ground unfulfilled. And that's an important expression. It's maybe not most familiar to us, but it's an important expression from God's word because that was what Joshua testified to at the end of his life. That what was his experience when the Lord had called him to do the important work of following Moses and leading God's people into the promised land? What was Joshua's testimony at the end of his life? We read about that in Joshua twenty-three fourteen. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one of the things the Lord promised has fallen to the ground. The Lord fulfills all that he's promised. And I think there's a wonderful sort of connection, in a sense, between the end of Joshua's time and the beginning of Samuel's time. Because one has returned who is a faithful servant of the Lord, who will testify to the fact that none of God's words fail. And Samuel will, in a sense, praise the Lord in everything he says and does for the rest of the time of his ministry. I always think it's such a wonderful testimony that the end of Samuel's life, he stands before the congregation of the Lord and says, you know, in ministering to you, did I ever defraud anyone? Did I ever not do what the Lord had called me to do? Does anybody have anything against me that they want to bring up? Not not many ministers would want to stand up and do that at the end of a long ministry. But when he says that, the people come and say, no, you've never done anything like that. You've always judged faithfully. None of us can say you did anything to defraud us. That is a testimony to the glory of the name as Samuel held it up. That he did all things to praise and honor that name that had called him and that he had the privilege of revealing as a prophet of God. Um, It's a wonderful testimony to his life. And we can see that in the reverse of the commandment, right? If the commandment comes and says, there's no sin greater than misusing the name. 
then couldn't we also say that there is no thing that God loves more than when we use his name properly? There's nothing that makes God happier than when we call on him in the name of his son? When we confess him in the name of his son? When we try to praise his son in all that we say and do? If no sin provokes God more when we do it wrong, surely it has to be that nothing makes God happier than when we glorify the name of his son. And we do not do that not so that we can earn life, we can't earn life by our holiness, but we do so as those who've come to know that name. It's only by grace that we can properly use the name of God. It's a testimony to the fact that God has made us live. And that's what the law continues to hold out for us. The great, the great grievous sin that it is to transgress and the great blessing that it is to keep the word of God. And so we who have heard the word, who know the Lord, who know the name of Jesus Christ, we ought to strive always to use that name well. To remember in our minds who it is that that name represents. Jesus Christ our Lord. And then use that name. Use it rightly to call upon God, to confess Him, and to praise Him in all that we say and do. May God work that in us by His Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the great blessing of knowing your name. And we thank you that in these last days you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, who is the exact imprint of your nature. We thank you that we know him, and in him we see you. And may, may we be those who do not misuse your name. Lord, where we have misused it, either speaking it improperly or using it as a cover for sin, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for that great sin. And Lord, we thank you that we have been made to know your name that the word of the Lord has come to us and we have known you and you have appeared to us in your son by his spirit and the word. And so then, Lord, help us to use that name aright, to make the name of Jesus Christ the name in which we call out to you, our Father, and to confess him, properly proclaiming him, and to praise him in all that we say and all that we do to your glory, knowing that you love your son and are pleased when he is honored in the world. May we make that our, our goal, Lord, to please you in all that we say and do, to the praise and glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.